All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. So glad you could join us for the uh, last session of today. Um, so glad and honored that we can have uh, Brother Timothy Haddon here with us. Um, super excited about this. Uh, consider him a mentor of sorts and a friend. So um, glad that you could be joining us uh, today. Um, just a reminder uh, for those that have been here, just possibly joining us, uh, the Q&A button at the top there. Feel free to utilize that at the end. We will uh, jump in there if there's any questions and address those. And without further delay, Brother Haddon, so glad that you're here. Take it away. All right. Well, thank you. And let me uh, first of all say to the the team that's jumped in how incredible you guys are. I appreciate all the support, all the emails, the answered text, and everybody that's joining them. Extremely thankful that you're making this uh, worthwhile. And every presentation thus far has just been tremendous, just been phenomenal. And I am just enjoying every single bit of what we are going through here. Um, I want to jump right into this. Uh, I have a pretty lengthy presentation, and it is on the subject of cosmic regeneration. And my job, my assignment is to try my very best to navigate uh, what essentially is um, the dimensional features of the new birth and to try to um, bring clarity to this. I want to open up, first of all, and make it clear that I was, first of all, tremendously amazed at the lack of representative literature um, that was available in apostolic community regarding the subject of regeneration through a theological lens. And so um, I will say that the academic branch of Pentecostalism, it's coming to age. Uh, but it's extremely clear, the more that I got into this, the more I studied, the more I looked into it, started compiling resources, that most of what has been scripted on regeneration and a theology related to it uh, has focused on the experiential features of Pentecostalism, or another way to say it, multi-layered histories of the Pentecostal uh, movement. Uh, in my opinion, um, this emphasis has created uh, a vacuum of systematic theological literature that, to me, it fails to rise to the sense of literary eminence uh, that challenges oppositional theologies on this matter. So systematically speaking, there's very few works. Uh, I would quote literature uh, such as David K. Bernard's Pentecostal Theology series. Um, others have contributed, uh, but in some measure, the contributions on regenerational theology uh, has been written very abstractly, or most of what we have is in tractate uh, fashion. And so I, I do think that this is unfortunate because since the modern uh, emergence at Azusa Street, Pentecostalism was and is, in my opinion, more than just an experiential movement, but it is a theological movement. Uh, one uh, person, Christopher Adam Stevens, made a statement that among all the other reasons, he said the early theological movement of Pentecostals was, quote, rarely systematic 
or comprehensive, and quote, most early Pentecostal theologians did not have the benefit of formal academic theological training. And so Stevenson, he does go on to identify, and I agree with a lot of the identifications that he makes of the deficiencies that have been positively addressed. In my opinion, in the last 30 or 40 years, we are seeing that vacuum addressed, and there's the development of systematic theologies that are giving attention to the whole of canonical, canonical scripture, a witness, and they're beginning to address a wide range of doctrinal, ethical, sociopolitical, and philosophical concerns. I do think that we still need to spend more time on this subject, and so my, my desire in this presentation is to try my very best to underscore a linguistically grounded semantic of both Old and New Testaments and bring about uh, a teaching or a theology that would relate to the topic of regeneration. So my goal in this is to, in just some small way, this is not exhaustive, I'm wanting to widen the scope of regenerative theology. And I will do that by advancing a biblical meta narrative that includes the dimensional features of both a spiritual and an eschatological regeneration. So to get started on this, and again, I have to go as quick as I can. Uh, I had 22 pages of notes and footnoted with this. Uh, every page has extensive footnotes, which have a smaller font. So this could easily have been 30 plus pages. So I'm going to do my very best to condense this and try to be a, as abbreviated as possible without losing the focus of the content. <clears throat> so when we talk about the cosmological features of regeneration, we've got to go back to, in my opinion, the cosmological features of the first two chapters of Genesis. And we have to consider that those first two chapters, they serve as a distinctive bookend to the entire redemptive drama. <clears throat> and the corresponding bookend uh, is found in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. To try to give some clarity to this, <clears throat> in the former, the first two chapters of uh, Genesis, we are met with <clears throat> the creation of all things. In the book of Revelation, the last two chapters, we are met with the renewal of all things. In the former, Genesis, we are met with the creation of the heavens and the earth. In the latter, a new heaven and a new earth. In the former of Genesis, we are met with the garden of God. And in the latter book of Revelation, we are met with the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God. In Genesis, the first two chapters, we are met with the tree of life. And in the latter revelation, we are met with a tree of life. In Genesis, the first two chapters, we are met with the dispersal of curses. And in the latter revelation, we are met with no more curses. <clears throat> so it's important to understand that these contrasting parallels between Genesis and regeneration, and I'm going to, I said that on, on purpose. I didn't say revelation, but I said these contrasting parables, parallels between Genesis and regeneration provide, in my opinion, an extremely uh, insightful glimpse into the rich biblical story that makes up a collective text of the Bible. So to launch this conversation, 
we have to go back to open this discussion. We have to go back to what I label as Genesis and generation. And to start there, we are met with the potter who is at work. Um, the potter is at work. Uh, does everybody have audio? I was just texted that somebody doesn't have audio. <clears throat> um, the potter at work is what the vivid Hebraic imagery of Genesis 2-7 captures as God utilizing the rudimentary elements of earth and water begins to fashion abstract intention into physical image. It is only in this creational or creative instance that divine thought, let us make man, precedes the act of creation. In fact, on this note, modern biblical scholar Nahum Sarna, uh, in his book Understanding Genesis, writes, quote, the creation of nothing else in the cosmogonic process is preceded by a divine declaration of intention and purpose. And so this potter at work, let us make man, this, this precedent of, of, of God speaking divine thought, divine intent, unlike the other acts of creation that were preceded by divine summons, let there be. The creation of man, it differs from the making of the cattle, the creeping things, the beasts of the earth, in that humanity is at this point in time God is making a direct referential extension of God's divine image. Man is made, just to throw this note out there, man is made both as, as a relational being and a referential being. And so following the animation of the referential image, man achieves, if I could use this word loosely, a duality in that he is, quote, of the dust of the ground, Genesis 2-7, yet made, quote, a little lower than the angels, Psalms 8 and 5. In my opinion, and I think this is borne out theologically, he is this first man, Adam. He is the prototypical human, his first generation, his generation or genesis is distinctly both terrestrial, but it's also abstractly celestial. His relocation from the ground, and that word when it says God took him from the ground, literally in Hebrew, it implies that he was grasped or seized. So when he was grasped or seized from the ground, it further, in my opinion, demonstrates this unique duality. The first man, Adam, he is both the same as, but better than the ground from whence he was formed. And this further implies or is implied by the naming of the creatures that he does that are formed out of the ground. When Adam, this first man, begins to name, this act of naming, we instantly find that there is evidence of a hierarchical design as man addresses the living creatures in a way that harkens back to a uniquely divine activity, and that is the naming of God in chapter one. This first man, who is made in the image and the likeness of God, he demonstrates authority over the creatures in that, quote, to confer a name 
is to speak from a position of authority and sovereignty. That's Hamilton from the book of Genesis. Uh, Umberto Casuto, in his analysis of the text, he writes, quote, The naming of something or someone is a token of lordship. The Lord of the universe named the parts of the universe and its time divisions, and he left it to man to determine the names of those creatures over which he had given him dominion. It is only after the building, the bana of the woman from the side of man, the first of creation to come from a living being, it's only after this that man now has a counterpart to assist him in fulfilling the divine mandate to subdue the earth and have dominion over the living creatures of the earth. It's through the verb subdue, kabas, that connotes a vivid imagery of violence and force, but more contextually accurate in this case, it envisions an agricultural cultivation through tillage. It is not to be overlooked that in a prelapsarian world, man is given creational mandates that directly correlate to the mastery of both the ground and those things that are formed from the ground. In a post-lapsarian world, this task becomes amplified following the heightened levels of resistance that man will face from the cursed ground. I made a note in the footnotes that man's conflict with the ground foreshadows the struggle that man will have as a regenerated person, evidenced by man's effort to subdue his flesh. This conflict of, of, of that violent subjugation is realized in both a literal and a spiritual sense. And so there are preludes in this. There's are, there are overtures already of the, of the struggle that regenerational man will face, even in the flesh. And so it's at this point, man has a woman. He has a helpmate. Man is to have mastery over the ground and those things that are formed from the ground. But when you get, get into the disobedience that happens in the garden, it's evident to quickly see that we're no longer faced with Genesis and generation, but now we're faced with Genesis and degeneration. At this point, man is instantly thrust into the decline of degeneracy. There's only one time in the English Bible that the term degenerate appears. Its usage is apropos, in my opinion, to the nature of man's fall and the ontology of original sin. Jeremiah 2.21 tells us, I had planted you a choice vine wholly of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate? And become a wild vine. To pull from that imagery, in similar imagery, I would say that man, created wholly as a pure seed, made in the image and likeness of God, becomes instantly degenerate from sir, meaning turn aside, especially to turn aside from the right path. Their immediate attempt, and this is something I really want to clarify in the process of this presentation, their response to this degeneracy, this failure, is an attempt to cover and hide their nakedness. 
which presents you and I as the readers with a clear understanding that something incredibly drastic has changed within them. As scripture unfolds, the premise of nakedness will continue over and over again to serve as an ongoing motif that highlights the ongoing degenerate condition of man. God would, of course, we know, address this degeneracy, this nakedness that occurs in them by making them coats of skin. But I want, I want to make a quick observation here, just kind of <clears throat> throw this out there and pause briefly. We do know that when they, when they failed, when the degeneracy occurred, it says they heard the voice of God <clears throat> walking in the garden and they hid themselves. Now, they had already sewn together fig leaves. They had already, in the sense of pragmatism, they had already clothed themselves. But the Bible said that when God begins to question them, he said, I hid because I was naked. Now, again, this is an important distinction in the context that we're going to talk about with regeneration, because in, 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 in pragmatic sense, they had already clothed themselves, but they still, evidenced by their hiding, they still feel naked. And so I would submit and present before we go any further that they sense, in my opinion, that what is happening in their life is that for to some degree, they are sensing God outside of themselves. And, and we're going to look at this a little bit further as we go in, but like 2 Corinthians 5, 2 and 3 is a vivid connection to this line of reasoning for, quote, for in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. And so I'm going to submit to you as we get get through this that that nakedness that they're feeling plays a directly referential role to the Edenic narrative moving forward in regeneration. And so now here they are. God has clothed them with skins. Yet borrowing again from Jeremiah 2.21, humanity becomes wild. That word wild uh, is found in equivalent in the New Testament, Colossians 1.16. You that were sometimes alienated, uh, that Greek word corresponds to the Hebrew, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. So man, in a sense of an alienation and estrangement, is, is in a position of degeneracy, and this is a fitting description of the human condition following their consumption of the forbidden fruit. But before they are <clears throat> uh, cast from the garden, before they're driven from the garden, uh, we find that the curse narrative brings the reader center stage to the consequences of the events of the human fall. The serpent is cursed to crawl on its belly all the days of its life. I believe, uh, just to pick that up, Leviticus 11, 41 through 44 specifically lists creatures that go on their belly as being an abomination. <clears throat> I can't overlook that. But here the serpent is told that it's going to crawl on its belly all the days of life. The woman faces the multiplication of sorrow and pain with childbearing and a unique relationship with her husband signaled by contrary desires marked by her being ruled by her husband. But as for the man, the ground that once yielded fruitless uh, fruitfulness becomes cursed. Quote, for thy sake, 
In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return in the ground. Here's the key. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. When you take careful observation of these punitive measures, you begin to see that Scripture is revealing that each of these curses or these punitive measures are either directly or indirectly tied to one's place of origin. So when we consider the theological nuances of place, uh, divine order, in my opinion, reflects the unity and the cooperation of things in place, functioning and achieving what divine intent has declared. At this point in the biblical drama, man is now misplaced. And when I mean misplaced, he is uh, he's incorrectly positioned, which I think answers back to the definition of sin, meaning to miss the mark. And so man now is misplaced, and suddenly he comes to find the world around him as an entropic reflection of his disordered state. It's at this point, the onset of the uh, redemptive history, that the world is subjected to frustration, and it groans in earnest, Romans 8.22, for what will come to be theologically understood as an eschatological feature of cosmic regeneration. At this point, the disorder and the dysfunction that's set into motion by the actions of Adam and Eve become immediately apparent in the first degenerated generation to take on the image of a post-lapsarian man. In the Cain and Abel narratives, one sees the residue of the divine image in righteous character of Abel, but it is soon overcome by the corruption of Cain as he steals from the earth the fruit of his mother's womb. The scene of the murder is a field, and it is the voice of his brother's blood, the first witness or a divine witness that begins to cry out from the ground. Judgment swift and Cain becomes alienated from the ground and hear this. He's no longer succeeding where his father was promised to struggle. Cain is the first to bring, physically become the causation or the causer of the physical death of another. He is the one that brings that into the world, which becomes indicative of the human condition, of the ongoing degeneracy in that Cain becomes placeless. If you do a big study on the Greek philosophers and what they talked about with placelessness and trying to uh, hammer out uh, what existence meant, how existence can be explained, you find that there is a word, not utopia, but atopia, which means placelessness. And in this sense, uh, Cain is one of the first men in, in the earth that essentially realizes an atopian reality. He is alienated from God, and man, just like Cain, is always in his unregenerated state 
moving away from the presence of God. Now, there's clarifications there, but bear with me. So by the time of the flood, the prevailing decay of mankind, you see it everywhere. It's realized in imaginations that are, quote, only evil continually, Genesis 5 and 5. The days of Noah, when you fast forward into the New Testament, you find that they're an eschatological feature of incredible significance. And these things bring to bear the days of Noah, the events of Noah, bring to bear creational elements that are similar to Genesis 1-2. And let me run through some of these things. The biggest one being is that the earth is entirely covered with water following the great deluge. And so there's a placeless paradigm. Things have gotten out of place because of the degeneration of humanity. Post-flood, following the flood, if anybody reads the text, you, you are plunged into what I consider several unique firsts that play significantly into the ongoing redemptive drama. There's a distinction between clean and unclean animals the first explicit erection of an altar built by man, and the first explicit mention of a burnt offering. As the waters rise and submerge the earth beneath its waves, a man is born after the image of Adam, and he is joined by his wife, having been found righteous, and every terrestrial species of the ground, both male and female, including three sons and their accompanying wives. It's at this point in the Bible that when we talk about regenerational, uh, dimensional features of of regeneration and, and, and regeneration in the Bible, it's at this point in the word of God that we begin to find, the, and the best way I can describe this, uh, our overtures of regeneration, in some sense, echoes. It's almost like at this point, and, and don't take me to task on this, it's like it's a it's a regenerational parentheses in scripture. God is starting to move certain things into the present and everything that starts to happen has in its sense a regenerational overture. For example, <clears throat> the flood and the events that follow they bring into focus a whole bunch of parallels that echo creational elements. In Genesis 1, there's a win from God, also a win from God in Genesis 8 and 1. In Genesis 1 versus Genesis 8, there's waters above and there's waters below. In Genesis 1 versus Genesis 8, there's the appearance of dry land. In Genesis 1 versus Genesis 8, there's generation and regeneration of vegetation. And then we have in Genesis 1 and Genesis 8, we have the perpetuation of night, day, and seasons. There's also in this, we find the command and blessing of animal abundance. And we find the similar mandate or blessing of fruitfulness among Noah's family that is comparable. And it's an, it's an echo of that which was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. And so every one of these elements, coupled with a divine covenant, and the initiation of law and order, they summon to mind the burgeoning idea of creational renewal. Uh, and, and when I say creational renewal, it's something that points to eschatological renewal. 
that is going to be brought about by the cleansing of the earth by water, which, of course, we know is an early foreshadowing of water baptism in regenerative theology. Yet, despite the flood, despite the cleansing the flood brought, despite this renewal, a concession was made by God that man's imaginations were, quote, evil from his youth. And this is a reality that manifests shortly after Noah plants a vineyard. Let me just throw this out there again with the planting of the vineyard. And I just, I need to throw this in. Soon after the abatement of the flood, when you start looking at what happens there, as in Genesis, nakedness appears once again, and you find that it serves as the catalyst to the first curse of this new day. This time, man is is meeting out the curse. But there's also similarities when you go back to it again, and, 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 and this deserves so much focus and attention. And, and I get so excited about this. I could spend a tremendous amount of time talking about these, these echoes and these unique similarities. But in Genesis, we have the planting of a garden in the early two chapters of Genesis. But here, Noah plants a vineyard. And it can't be overlooked, in my opinion. It cannot be overlooked, as was in the case of the garden, a tree, in the case now of Noah, a vine, brings about the cause of nakedness itself. But it's with this planting of the vineyard that we see the manifestation of that evil imagination. So most of the events that follow throughout the course of the Old Testament history, they adhere closely to uh, what I would call a model of containment. That is to say, the containment of evil inclinations and passions through the observance of divine and or human law or agency. It's like God understands that it's going to be evil from his youth, but I've got to find a way to contain that degeneracy that's in man. So when he calls out the chosen people, the nation of God ratifies the law of the de- through the Decalogue and the observation of the sacral system. Human degeneracy at this point is being addressed in a limited manner of temporary absolution. However, As such systems manage to work to contain and temporarily absolve man of the sinfulness and that orientation towards sin, it is not until in the Old Testament the petition of David for the creation of a new heart and the making anew of his spirit that we get our first early hint of the true reorientation of the inner man. And it's at that point that it begins to come to life. When you look at the pining of David for that regenerative miracle, it begins to help establish in the Old Testament an ongoing renewal motif that I think the prophets, they lift as they begin to speak to the petition of David when they declare, and I quote from Ezekiel, a new heart will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. In 35, I want to make this clear, in that Ezekiel passage, go back and read it. Uh, Again, we can't cover everything. I've got so much to talk about. But when you go back to that Ezekiel passage, it's interesting to me that the promise of a new heart and a new spirit are also followed with the promise to bring increase from the ground and the absence of future famines. So in my opinion, these connections echo 
a prelapsarian earth where man is not in conflict with the earth to wrest fruit from its field. And of course, we know that all of that is pointing toward an eschatological redemption of the earth. And so I, I can't look past that. But as you see the prophets lift regeneration, lifting that motif that David initially sets into motion, this theme of spiritual renewal is further elevated with promises of a future spiritual outpouring. Joel 2.28, Zechariah 12.10, Isaiah 32.15, and Ezekiel 39.29. And every one of these texts, it's like it sets the tone for restorative ideologies. It's not until the turn of the common era that God would continue to set into motion events that will guide a redemptive drama toward the fulfillment of the promised seed, paving the way for rebirth and renewal as realized in the doctrine of regeneration. Now, I want to point something out here when we talk about God putting events into motion. Uh, when you go through the word of God and the, the meta narrative of redemption that covers the Old Testament, there's an emphasis that underlines the intent of regeneration. For example, uh, in the Babel story, the, the saga of human beginnings, it comes to a close, plays a, it, it plays an integral role in the meta narrative of redemption, and in particular, the dispersion and the distinction of seed that begins to take center stage by the time Abraham is called. And from that point, it continues to advance throughout the patriarchal narrative, the leadership of Moses and Joshua, and throughout the time of the judges, kings, and the prophets. So throughout the entire Old Testament, these images are, are pushing forward, and they are foreshadowing the seed and bringing the seed into focus that at the end of the day, Abraham, the father of a new people in a new way, the struggle of the womb to bring seed into fruition, the conflict between the elder and the younger, the ongoing saga of the seed, all of this is paving the way for a redemptive and regenerative fulfillment. And in that are unbelievable overtures of a New Testament regenerational theology. So by the time that you get to the New Testament, and we are hurrying as fast as we can, by the time you get to the New Testament where you find rebirth and renewal, the theological term that is used for renewal or rebirth is regeneration, hence what we're talking about. In the Greek, it's palienesia. It occurs twice in the New Testament, Matthew 19 and 28 and Titus 3 and 5. And in each of these instances, palienesia is used in a different sense. In Matthew, it conveys an eschatological renewal of all things, while in Titus, it is linked with uh, it's linked with anachinosis, which is renewal, and it refers to the initiation of new life in the believer. So, in light of biblical events, the spiritual sense, new birth, is the forerunner of the eschatological sense of regeneration in that the believer receives the earnest of his future inheritance while 
Scripture says, groaning along with the earth and all creation. And what are they all groaning for? To be freed from the bondage of corruption, an event that will occur with the eschatological new creation of all things. And you can see that in Romans 8, 21 and 22. So with the birth of Jesus, the unfolding narrative of the Old Testament, if I can put it the best way again, it collides with what the Apostle Paul calls the fullness of times as the redemptive seed made of a woman. Jesus becomes the catalyst to the regenerative promises of the prophets and the petitions of David with the arrival of Jesus. An eschatological and spiritual regeneration will be thrust into the spotlight of the ongoing redemptive drama, this time as the last Adam, born of a woman, he now enters the dramatic story of regeneration. So we got to take a look at the last Adam. When Paul began to deliver his address at the synagogue of Antioch of Pisidia, Paul began to weave together, in my opinion, a masterpiece of a historical narrative uh, about the Jewish people. And he brings them from the calling of their forefathers to the entrance into the land of Canaan, the promised land of Canaan. And it's here that in the Old Testament, in this message by Paul, he comes now through all of this history, this Old Testament context, and he comes to rest on David. And it's here that Paul establishes, and I quote, of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. As you go through the rest of the story, it's it's, it's a masterpiece of, of, of capturing these biblical connotations of old. But he begins to knit together a myriad of Old Testament prophecies, and he begins to establish Jesus as having been raised from the dead. And then Paul says his body's seeing no corruption. I want to make a point here about this statement by Paul when he talks about no corruption. Three times in the discourse that Paul would give, he would emphasize the absence of corruption. Acts 3, 35, 36, and 37. These three times he emphasizes it. And then Peter, later on, Peter, on the day of Pentecost in his formal address and petition or charismatic proclamation to the Jews, he would articulate in 2 and 27 the same exact thing that he saw no corruption. In my opinion, when you read this, is is I think that there's inferences to Leviticus chapter 7, 15, and 18 that are applying because it tells us that parts of the sacrifice that were not to be burned upon the altar that were that were, were those that were not uh, kept until the third day and eaten, as decay and corruption would cause it to become an abomination. When you go back to Leviticus, I believe that that is the emphasis that they're making. Those th- there could not be corruption, and so when you forward this, Paul's bringing them through this this narrative, and he's highlighting the lack of corruption. But then Paul turns, and he brings to light an important feature of regenerative theology when he links Jesus's resurrection with the words of Psalms 2-7, and he says, quote, this day have I begotten thee. By declaring Jesus as having been begotten after the resurrection, Paul is pointing to the resurrection 
as how Jesus received the nations and the ends of the earth as his inheritance, Psalms 2 and 8. And when you go back and read that, it's not what's being said that's screaming. It's what is not being said that is screaming. He is declaring that it was at that point that the nations and the ends of the earth were given as his inheritance. And so what's happening here? There's an implication of absolute authority and and the inheritance of the nations and the end of the earth. There is a, there is a, a strong use of language being pointed out here. And so when Jesus is declared, he's declared that having been begotten after the resurrection, he's conquered death in the grave. Jesus emerges as, quote, the firstborn from the dead. What's happening right now? Positional terminology. <laughs> and this positional terminology, what is it doing? It's pointing to the absolute sovereignty of, quote, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. What's, what's being said here? Let's elaborate. Let's expand on that. As the firstborn of every creature, Jesus becomes, and I want to articulate this because this is powerful and it needs to be remembered, the supreme firstborn of all creation. And thus, because he's the supreme firstborn, he becomes the rightful heir of all things. So according to scripture, Jesus is the firstborn. He's higher than the kings of the earth, Psalms 89, 27. He's the firstborn, firstborn among many brethren, Romans 8, 29. He's the firstborn of the church, Hebrews 12, 23. What's happening? Jesus would go further himself, and he would speak to this positional supremacy by later declaring at his ascension, quote, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So having been made of a woman, taking sin to the cross and conquering the ultimate corruption of, de- of sin, which is death, Jesus takes to himself everything that the first Adam had forfeited through disobedience. So there's this Adamic language that Paul uses in his Corinthian letter. And what is it doing? It's helping us establish this restoration of Adamic authority in that quote. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. If you remember anything that I teach today, remember this phrase. If I could Put that in different terms. The first Adam was generated. The last Adam became the generator. And so there's a powerful, powerful concept theologically that's being borne out. So back to the first Adam. The first Adam, having been made in the image and likeness of God, later called the son of God, according to Luke 3.38, that first Adam became corruptible. And he sowed by circumstance and inheritance of corruption by passing death onto all subsequent seeds bearing his corruptible image. Jesus, the last Adam, is the son of God in the truest sense in that he is, quote, the express image of God, Hebrews 1.3, yet, quote, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and he took upon him on him the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross so the last adam 
Again, Paul and Peter clarifying his body not seeing any corruption. He now stands as the one who can generate a seed of another kind, which will become the children of the kingdom. So when you move from this and you transition from this, and we're covering so much ground, I mean, we're literally covering the entire Bible in a little over an hour. You begin to realize that there's an evident design. Uh, When you go to John's prologue, John chapter one, and, and launching from Jesus being the generator of a seed of another kind, you find when you go to John chapter one and you hear the words, quote, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So following Jesus's victory and reception of the supreme inheritance as the firstborn of the dead, the last Adam secures for you and I, humanity, the right to become the sons of God after his having been made a quickening spirit. Those who would become the sons of God, how would they realize such status? By being born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So this language of being born, again, not of flesh, uh, not of blood, but of God. This language, you know, is articulated by Jesus when he confronts Nicodemus, and he mandates to him that he must be born again. Greek word that means from above. How should he be born again? Of the water and the spirit. Now, this is where we're really getting to the heart of regenerative theology. And and what's he doing? He clearly distinguishes, as he talks to Nicodemus, he clearly distinguishes, quote, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So he's, he, Paul later on will, will seize uh, similar language, and he will establish that, quote, as is the earthy, so also are they that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. So man, being dead in his trespasses, we have a need to be quickened, to be made alive, in order that we can be, quote, raised up and made to sit, quote, in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, let me clarify. In man's degenerate condition, man maintains only the image of the first Adam. He's the son of the first Adam. And as long as he remains in the sonship and the image of the first Adam, he continues to exist as a stranger to, quote, the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's only through rebirth and renewal that humanity can lay claim as joint heirs to the power of Christ, who was set, quote, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Again, this language of sonship is further evidence in the fact that those who are born again become heirs of Abrahamic promises by becoming Abraham's seed. Paul would further feature the flesh-spirit paradigm, and he would contrast the firstborn and the secondborn children of Abraham by declaring, quote, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, 
We are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. So in the epistle to the Romans, Paul would go further and he would expand the idea in that, quote, they which are children of the flesh, these are not children of God. But the child of the promise is counted for the seed. In my opinion, probably the most poignant text in the New Testament featuring sonship through regeneration is found in Romans 8.15. And this is what it says. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And and you deserve, you owe it to yourself to do a study of the Greco-Roman environment uh, where adoption relationships that were former were cut off and the adopted son entered into a relationship featuring rights and responsibilities enjoyed by a natural son. You, you owe it to yourself to do a study of that. But Romans 8.15 declares, we did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Abba. So a new creation, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about regeneration. Perhaps the most remarkable aspect, in my opinion, of the new birth experience, the regenerative experience, is the language used that echoes the creational activity that's found in the book of Genesis. When you look at the text, the disciples and the group of followers numbering about 120, they're gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And Luke reveals that while they were tarrying for the promise of the Father, quote, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. This is extremely similar to the Spirit of God that moved over the face of the waters in Genesis 1-2. But now the Spirit of God moves into the house where the expectant followers of Christ are sitting, when to the eyes of Luke, and this is so important, to the eyes of Luke, It appears as though tongues of fire sit upon each of them. Again, we are met with a creational similarity that comes to mind. In the following, we have the moving of the Spirit, and then there's an introduction of light. Why do I say an introduction of light? Because in the first century, the best way to describe light filling a room is through the articulation of fire. And so these metaphors, these these motifs are carrying through regenerative theology finds its benchmark in the very earliest pages of the scripture. So the result of this intrusion of divine wind and light is that everyone in the room is, as you know, filled with the Holy Ghost. And they begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. So when Peter then moves forward, and I'm hurrying, to articulate the message of regeneration to the convicted Jews in Acts 2.38. He talks about how man, he gives them the, the pattern by which man can cast off the works of darkness and become armored with light. That's where we are given. Romans 13.12, that message is how by we cast off darkness and put on the armor of light. That was made manifest then. And with the washing of regeneration, Palaeonicea, and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, Titus 3, 5, man becomes at that point, quote, a new creature where old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, 
in my opinion, in that text that I just read to you, all things become new. There's residual in this text, early resonations of God creating a new world at his second coming. Go to Isaiah 42 and 9 and a whole bunch of other scriptures. But what we're seeing in that text, I believe, is an already but not yet aspect of regeneration that features two two ideas of regeneration. And that is that which is eschatological and that which is spiritual. But I don't have time to get into that. But he says, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Regenerated man envisions at this point the radical renovation of the interior life of man, his heart, his mind, and his will, an answer to the very petitions of David for the creation of a new heart and the making anew of his spirit is provided through that regenerative activity that occurred in Acts 2.38 and the lives of you that are watching now. In regeneration, the old man is crucified with Christ and his ways are thrown aside like an old filthy garment while he puts on the new man, which, quote, is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him. One one writer says, and I do want to quote this, what was lost in the fall into sin is gained through the application of grace. Through this process of renewal, individuals corrupted by Adam can gain what Adam lost for himself and his offspring. Going on, my words. Whereas the floodwaters in Noah's days, remember this, this is so powerful. When you teach baptism, and and this is one of those dimensional features of, of, of regeneration, the floodwaters in Noah's days failed to renovate the heart of man that, quote, was evil from his youth. Nor could the sacrificial system of the Mosaic law do more than roll away man's sins. But the regenerative elements of blood, water, and spirit, 1 John 5 and 6, they were able to cleanse, remit, and renew mankind as he was placed within the body of Christ, a new eschatological community. Now, I don't have time to get into the Johannine comma. Uh, We'll get into that briefly. But anyways, This new eschatological community, it was called out of darkness into his marvelous light. At this point, the last Adam becomes the generator of a new creation and the first installment of cosmic eschatological regeneration occurs. So what are the elements of regeneration? Well, when we begin to pull together all of these things that I'm trying to capture in about an hour and 20 minutes, which is nearly impossible, but we're doing the best we can. When you start pulling all these underlying meta narratives of regeneration from the Old and the New Testament, we are met with the cosmic renewal of the eschaton and the already but not yet features of regeneration in the church age. In my opinion, it's important to note that regeneration, as expressed in Titus 3.5, it includes both elements of water and spirit. These two elements are consistently throughout the Old Testament, featured, and they regard creational generation and regeneration. For example, during the creation of man, both elements appear. As God, quote, watered the whole face of the ground, formed man to the dust of the ground, and, quote, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Right there, we have, early on in Scripture, we have these 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 overtures of future regeneration in that there's water and there's spirit or the breath of life present. What about the flood narrative? 
the elements of Genesis 1-2, there is water and wind. The ruach are once again present after the great deluge. Okay, so you've got, again, water and wind. And in the record of Israelites passing through the Red Sea, what do you have? You have wind and water that accompanies Israel's deliverance story. Now, when we look at Noah's flood and Israel's exodus, what does the New Testament bear out? And how, how, how strong does it give us the strength of the foreshadowing elements of regeneration? It's very simple. These elements between Noah's flood and Israel's exodus and the New Testament, we see this evidence pointed out very powerfully in that they're tied to the regenerative features of water baptism. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2, 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21. Just as in the flood where corruption was submerged beneath the waters, that motif applies to the burial of the corrupted image of the first Adam in water baptism by submersion, which First Peter establishes is, quote, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, there's so much there. Uh, just do a study on that. I don't have time to get into all, all of what is being said there. But this burial motif, let's look at it further. It's evidenced by Paul. He says, quote, know ye not that so many of us were baptized in Jesus Christ, were baptized unto his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Later in the Corinthian address, Israel was said to have been baptized un into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. These are all distinct antitypes that portray the glory of God in the cloud and the waters of the sea that parallel being baptized into Christ. Now, minus the jo Johannine comma, 1 John 5, 7 through 8, and I don't believe the, 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 the Johannian comma is necessary to get into, but there are more qualified me to talk about that. But minus that, 1 John 5, 7 through 8 agrees with these fundamental elements of re regeneration, and it further includes blood as the causative agency of regeneration. Here's what it says, and I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, for there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Now, I want to make it very clear that we are seeing in that the testimonial motif of two or three witnesses that cannot go unnoticed in that text. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. The, the very message of salvation, repentance, water baptism, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost, death, burial, and resurrection, is, it, it is in and of itself. It is part of the motif of two or three witnesses. But when you get into these, I want to make it clear that the, 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 the Johannine text, is as it, as it works into these unifying agencies, it's only by, quote, the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit that one can put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him. So key to this entire narrative is the image motif that pulls together the meta narrative of regeneration, both eschatologically and spiritually. And this is concretely realized in the image of the first Adam and the last Adam, quote, here, the exhortation makes more explicit use of the motif of Adam and creation in terms both of knowledge and the image of God, an unavoidable allusion to Genesis 126. So in the washing of regeneration, 
and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, man is born again and made anew in the image, in the knowledge after the image of God. You cannot overlook the knowing that followed the first parent's consumption of the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil in that they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. When you contrast vividly, when you contrast that, that knowing that we are born again, made anew in the knowledge after the image, when you contrast that with the prelapsarian unknowing where nakedness brings about neither shame nor activity on their part to remedy the nakedness. Going further, in Ephesians, the source of knowing, the mind becomes the target of regenerative admonition. Be renewed, Scripture says, in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Again, Paul echoes this when he writes, quote, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So in Titus 3 and 5, trying to pull this all together. Renewing is the present passive participle in the Greek that suggests that renewal is continuous and it has an outside source. The preposition at the beginning of the compound verb suggests not the restoration of some prior state, but a contrast to what existed before. Paul describes this. This very renewing in the second epistle to the Corinthians, quote, though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. So what is regeneration? Regeneration is not the restoration of a prior condition, though it hearkens back to the prelapsarian pre-fall man that was made in the image and likeness of God. But we are a new creation. We are God's, quote, workmanship created in Jesus Christ. And we are patterned after the image of the last Adam, who, quote, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And he came and preached to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we have both have access by one spirit unto the Father. So because Christ had made in himself of twain one new man, the regeneration of the new man made after the image of the last Adam implies the reality that there is, quote, neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So how do we bring this to either a confusing conclusion, trying to pull together every little piece of this. And again, you need to read the paper and I'm wrapping this up and concluding in the time that I wanted to. How do we conclude all this? How do we pull this all together? Well, first of all, you will have to read the paper because there are so many footnotes that try to elaborate and lengthen upon that which I'm trying to discuss. Man's born again of the water and the spirit. He is a cosmic yet uniquely terrestrial creation that bears the image of God both naturally and spiritually. Bible says, as man was made in the image of God naturally, I'm sorry, not, not the Bible, but one man said, as man was made in the image of God naturally, so he is now spiritually. 
But the image of God formed in us by the Spirit is as much more glorious than that born by Adam, as the second man, the Lord of heaven, is more glorious than the first. Holiness. And I love holiness. What does holiness constitute? It constitutes our chief likeness to God as originally. Adam, when fallen, begat a son in his own fallen likeness and image. So we are sealed with the Spirit, indicating authority, authenticity, and security, a validation of ownership. The regenerated individual becomes, as it was in the beginning, both terrestrial and celestial. He is both earthly and heavenly. He is made to walk at that point as strangers and pilgrims, subduing that which is fleshy, or as Paul stated, bringing the body constantly into subjection, lest becoming a castaway, language that mirrors that of Cain, of Cainish origin. And so as the prelude to an eschatological regeneration, the spiritual regeneration of man brings humanity back into alignment with divine order and purpose. And we are uniquely cosmic terrestrial people with an earthly inheritance that anticipates a cosmic kingdom to come. And in the words of Bishop Wilson, in his late great musical release, sure to win many Grammys, we really indeed are, through the regeneration, we truly are cosmic kids. Thank you. I hope that made sense. Thank you so much, Brother Haddon. That was incredible. Thank you so much for uh, being a part and for presenting that to us today. Um, I want to give at least a few minutes here uh, for anybody that wants to put a question in the Q&A here. Um, We'll give it a couple minutes um, to put down your thoughts to hopefully uh, wrap this day up here. Just a reminder, um, we will be joining again tomorrow morning. Again, at 9 a.m., starting with Brother Daniel McKillop. Um, So hope to see you all back for that. Um, But, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll give it a couple minutes here and uh, see if anybody posts in the Q&A. And then Brother Haddon, if you'd like, um, obviously I can read them off. But if you want to go to that Q&A section in case anybody does post, if you want to reference it, um, you're familiar with that, uh, obviously, from previous sessions. So um, give it a minute here. But thank you again. Uh, for uh, expounding on that and presenting to us that today, brother. We greatly appreciate it. Surely somebody wants to beat me up. We did that in good time. Yes, you did. We got through that. Um, made awesome time here. So, oh, all right. Yeah, it looks like we did get somebody to post there. Perfect. <laughs> well, not a question, but a thank you for the work and prep. Thank you. I would love to see those that are watching 
there are many, many, many on that are watching right now that are deeply uh, brilliant men. I would love to see an expansion on this regenerative idea. There's so much that we need to put together, even psychologically. So, oh. Do do you feel, Brother Wilbanks, do you feel there is a connection between Jesus' use of Palaeonicea and Paul's use of the same to Titus? I think they share similarities, but to me they're very evidently, and again, I'm open for suggestion and correction. There's some of you that are in here that are actually Greek scholars. Um, but I do feel that one does capture the eschatological sense more than the spiritual sense. And I think Titus is capturing, as I said in my presentation, I believe that the spiritual sense of Palaeonicea is a forerunner to the eschatological sense of Palaeonicea. In that eventually, you know, we groan, and as the earth groans itself, the new heavens and new earth that, that, that Revelation pulls together, which I opened up the paper with, is that we see the bookends in the Bible, the first two chapters of Genesis, in contrast with the last two chapters of Revelation, um, I, I do think that there is a different use, but I think that how, – how do I say this? I think they're, they're a part of the same cake you know, to some degree. They're a part of the same cake. I hope that answered your question. I'd love follow-up some point. I would love your thoughts on that in the future. Dr. Jeremy Painter. what are we missing on this topic in the contemporary church? How should we – how should this alter what and how we teach and preach and disciple? <laughs> um, one thing that I, – and I, I want to say this as carefully as I can because I don't want it to come across as critical. But going back to, going back to my initial opening statements when I opened up this treatise is it – it floored me at how little uh, little work we actually have outside of anecdote or tractate or just old um, audio or or charismatic teachings on it or even even teaching in and of itself, not just proclamation. How little uh, regenerational theology we have formulated that kind of doesn't become repetitive and just kind of say what everybody else has said. I feel that in this, and I'm nobody special, and, and I, I I am actually in the process of hoping to turn this into a publication because I, I think that it can be it can be borne out further. But but I think that we have gotten so experiential focused that sometimes we we almost divorce um we divorce ourselves from a regenerative theology or, or, or the principles that I'm trying to capture in here. I think that when we disciple people, I, I think that, that more than just the experiential claim of, of, the, of the new birth experience, I think that we desperately need an outlined reality. And again, it's like Dr. Galindo brought up in his presentation, how much, uh, how much different groups have seized upon, say, dominion theology or the prosperity doctrines and all these these theologies that kind of a morph uh, that morph out of, I think, a true theology. 
I think that it behooves us to really sit down and spend more time investing in these dimensional features of the new birth, bringing together that entire meta narrative. And that's where I think that um, expositional teaching is is absolutely crucial in the day we live in, because what what we're trying to present here, and again, it's a little candy stick of mine, we're trying to present here cannot be captured in kirgma alone, in proclamation-driven preaching or inspirational preaching. We are, the Apostle Paul, when he, when he wrote his letters and when he discussed regeneration, when he talked about it, as I tried, again, and I will fail poorly to put together every connection Paul has, Paul was an unbelievable connector of that meta narrative that's captured in the text. And it's staggering to me just how powerful he wove that. So in a roundabout way, in a long way to answer that question, I do think that we need to bring this down to an instructional uh, theological thing that we are tying people to. This just not all, you know, experience driven and, and and again, I don't want to be critical, and I hope that's understood. I hope that answered your question. There's a lot I could say on that. I'd love to know your thoughts. Keep it going here for any follow-up if anybody wants to uh, post anything in here. And then if not, we'll give it a couple minutes and wrap up. Here we go. Please. And I really would, Brother Painter, all of you that are present, uh, I respect greatly. I would love for for each of you to reach out. I mean, the goal of this is I'd love to have, I'd love to have what I presented picked apart. I'd love to have it examined and looked at and discussed further, but yeah, it is such an important subject. All right. Well, I think, uh, Nobody else has anything else to uh, post here. Uh, once again, Brother Haddon, thank you greatly uh, for joining us and for taking the time. Um, much appreciated. Um, and to all that are on with us, you as well, thank you so much for joining us uh, today uh, for any of the sessions that you're in. And obviously this last one here, uh, we will be joining again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. with uh, Brother Daniel McKillop. So please uh, hopefully, if you're able to come back for that, um, if you have any questions at all regarding any of the material today, please reach out to us um, or any of the connections, issues, anything along those lines. We'd be happy to help you in any way possible. Uh, but once again, thank you um, so much, Brother Haddon. We appreciate it. All right. God bless and you. All have a great night.